I'll be reading out of chapter 1 of Hebrews, and I will be reading from verse halfway through half, well, I'll just go ahead and read from verse 3 unto um, verse 5 of chapter 1 of Hebrews. Hear now the word of God. He is the radiance of glory of God, of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much superior to angels, as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which the angels of God did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the assurance of your word. We thank you that there is actually power in the word. That you have called us to read it, to proclaim it, and to preach it. For your glory and our good. So help us this day that as we spend this time thinking upon your word, hearing your word, and hopefully being transformed by your word, that you would receive this great glory that we hear promised about and that it would be truly good food for our souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As I've mentioned before in the past that uh, to some of you that I'm going to take my time going through the book of Hebrews. And so uh, we may be on the book of Hebrews for a good decade at this particular rate. Uh, no, I don't. Hopefully it will not take that long. But the, the thing about the book of Hebrews is even though it's not a tremendously long book of the Bible, it references so many things and, and uses the scriptures in so many ways. And it is assuming that the readers are familiar with the Old Testament, because you have to remember that they didn't have the New Testament book to read the Word of God, that it was being put together at this very time. And so that was the primary place of their study at that time. And so it's good for us, even though many of you throughout the history of your life may have done quite a bit of study in the Word of God and been in the Old Testament, it is good for us to take our time through that because though this book was written for the Hebrews, it is our book of the Bible also, and we do have to go into it with a particular lens. Now, one of the lenses that we would go through first to be able to understand it rightly is that the original receivers of this letter would have been in a particular place in their time that angels was an infatuation to these people because there was a silence between the Old and New Testament. And they, just like us today, we sometimes can get interested in things that are a little more flashy, and angels are definitely flashy. It can be ascertained from the literature written during the time between the Old and the New Testaments that there was an intense focus on angels. This uh, literature is sometimes called the Second Temple literature. Angels are real, they are powerful, they are glorious, and they have varying degrees of authority as messengers and guardians for God's kingdom and purposes. This is clearly confirmed both in the Old and New Testaments. So some of this focus that they had was not 
all bad and not unwarranted because God designed them to be glorious and to be attention getters for us. But the intensity and some of the errors, particularly concerning the angel's relationship to Jesus Christ, needed to be addressed right up front as the writer of Hebrews is wanting to establish very clearly the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Just as we need, excuse me, it is just additional evidence that we are easily distracted, and even by good things. And often we will use good things even more to be distractions because they're good, and we know that they're goods. My notes are a little off track this morning, so give me just a moment. Just like some of my illustrations and visual aids, I know I sometimes try to come up with some pretty off-the-wall illustrations to gain people's attention so that I can make a particular biblical point. And I've noticed, particularly with children, but I'm sure adults have the same kind of distraction. They just don't voice it as openly as children. And I'll do an illustration or use a visual aid, and that's the thing they begin to look at, or they'll get really like, what in the world is he talking about in an illustration? And it's actually just the opposite. They actually miss the point of what it is, then they get more consumed with the packaging than they do with what's inside. I mean, you can imagine that even with the the recent Christmas celebration that we had, you know, you have angels coming to declare the glory of Jesus Christ, but then when you see Jesus, he's in a manger, and it doesn't seem to be all that glorious. And that was a thing that went along with Jesus's life as people say, well, what good thing can come from Nazareth? Isn't this Joseph's son that God gave these messengers to give us an indication of just how powerful and glorious the very centerpiece of that glory is. And it takes really the word and the Holy Spirit to enliven us to be able to see that glory. He's actually using our physical senses. He's using our weaknesses to help draw us to the place where we would find true strength. So the writer has valid reasons to quickly distinguish the supremacy of Jesus Christ above angels because angels are probably some of the most glorious things that we can imagine that the Lord has created. But how many of us here believe that Jesus is greater than the angels? I would hope that everyone believes that Jesus is greater than the angels. Even in our call to worship, it says that Jesus is upon the cherubim. He's over the cherubim. And that is, might seem to be easy for us to accept. But look at these particular statistics. According to the Associated Press poll, 8 out of 10 Americans believe in angels. 4 out of 10 of non-religious, even non-believing people, believe in angels. But according to the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University, only one-third of Americans believe in the call of the gospel, that confessing their sins and embracing Jesus Christ as their Savior will be the sole reason that they go to heaven. So only a third of Americans actually believe in the gospel and believe in the power of Jesus Christ, but eight out of ten believe in angels. And that's just the tip of the iceberg to say that we're probably really not that far away from where these original receivers of this letter are in their thinking. And we have a lot more things today to be distracted by. But what we do when we have these particular situations, we take something that God has created 
that is not the centerpiece, and we end up making it the centerpiece. And we begin to even worship those concepts. And in a sense, we're really ultimately making ourselves the centerpiece. I think this is going to be one of those illustrations that will throw people off probably. But I know as a kid, I didn't have all of the cool toys, but I had like little pieces of things. Um, I didn't have, like when G.I. Joe came out, I had like maybe three G.I. Joe men and then maybe a little tank. But you know, the, the big deal was the big aircraft carrier. Does anybody remember that? The G.I. Joe? <laughs> like, man, if you, had the, if you had the aircraft carrier, you had the thing. And then I didn't have all of the Star Wars things. I had some of the basic characters, but I didn't have any of the equipment. But if you had like the Millennium Falcon, you know, you would have the thing, right? Never had that. Now, still, as a kid, I had some leftovers of my Fisher-Price toys. You know, those little toys that were round and they had no arms. Um, I, had, I had a bunch of those. And then I had one Weeble Wobble. Does anybody remember the Weeble Wobbles? The little Indian guy. So I would bring them all together. <laughs> and I would, they would, I would create a community or I would create some kind of story with all of that. I didn't have any of the main things, but I would, at different times, I would make these things that were on the side, these peripheral characters, I would give them an opportunity to be like the supreme ruler. And it was fun with the Weeble Wobble guy. I would make him the supreme ruler because he was kind of one that you wouldn't expect to be one because, you know, you can knock him down, but they always come back up. <laughs> and he had this really creepy smile, too, so if you can imagine. He's like, yeah, yeah, can't knock me down. <laughs> so it was easy to be the ruler because he, he would never be overcome even by the G.I. Joe guys, they couldn't knock him down for, for long. I know that's kind of a silly thing, but then in a way, that's kind of a silly way that we are in understandingly so in our human flesh that we would take God's creation, the things that are there to point us to the main thing, and we actually put those in the positions of the main thing. And it's not as if we don't have access to the main thing, the supreme ruler of all things. And it's actually a little more dark than that is that we do this for our own selfish purposes. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 2 because the writer of Hebrews Hebrews references Psalm 2 and it gives us an indication of one of the reasons why it would be that we would put maybe angels in place. Now, there is an innocent element of that. But as we begin to have Jesus' name proclaimed to us more, we have to ask ourselves, and especially today, because I think I read somewhere that in America that the average American has four copies of the Bible in their home. Now, of course, I have a lot more than that because I even have some that belongs to the church. I have boxes of Bibles. But we have an average American, these same Americans that may not believe in the gospel, they have, at least on an average, four copies of the full written revelation about Jesus Christ. So why are we not a people that would be focused on the center? Well, Psalm 2 still remains true. Let us read through Psalm 2. It says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. And against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. 
Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on a Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, and be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoicing with trembling. Kiss the Son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. That's a powerful psalm, and it's a, it's a daunting psalm when we get to the middle of it. It's showing us just how powerful, and we see how powerful this one is. The anointed king is the son, and there is no one closer to the father than the Son. When these words are said in Hebrews, it is to resonate for us that Jesus is truly over the angels, but he is over everything. But it starts out with why would we go in some other direction? And though the English translation is fine here when it says, why do the nations rage and why the peoples plot in vain? Maybe it would be good to dig a little deeper in the Hebrew meaning of those words that when it says, why do the nations rage? You can also translate that into English and saying, why do the peoples be restless? Why are the peoples noisy? And the peoples not just plot, but why do they meditate on things in vain? The Hebrew word there for plot is the same word that we have in verse 2 of Psalm 1, right above, where it says, when it's talking positively, but he delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That's the same Hebrew word, meditate, that we have for plot. So it means on the things that our mind is inclined to dwell upon. We might think that I'm not plotting any kind of thing against Jesus Christ. But the question is, what do you meditate upon? What captivates your mind that you dwell upon? In Psalm 1, it says that we are to meditate upon the word of the law, the word of the Lord, his law, his truth, that that is the thing that we should take delight in. And the reason why there is rage, why there is restlessness, is because we meditate upon the wrong things. We have taken the things that he has created and the pleasures that he's created and we have rearranged them in such a way where they have become the centerpiece of our lives, the centerpiece of our meditations. And then we are led by people in this world, kings and rulers and principles that have come together in different ways, not just because those are the only things we had to contemplate on, but it's to be against the Lord, against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Let us burst apart the things that we are ultimately created and for Christians that we have been redeemed to do, which is to worship 
and to honor and to meditate upon the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you read Psalm 2 there, don't go, well, you know, I'm not a part of the conspiracy. I'm not a part of the nations of rage. I mean, we watch TV and we see people who are full of rage. But look at what the word means in Hebrew, this restlessness. How many of us are restless? We see that we are a people who are very restless. I've mentioned this multiple times in in preaching that it is one of the number one reasons why there's so much sickness is that people are not getting rest. And the Lord has brought through his reign and through his work, he has brought true rest, not just a rest in our division between the Father, but a, a rest. That's why we have today, the Lord's Day, and we're called to rest in Him, that we can actually rest from our works and our labors and trust that things are going to still get done. That we would think that we would have so much control that we have to keep things going or the the earth is just going to shut down unless we work 24-7. No, He wants us to rest realizing that it's not really up to us anyway. It's kind of one of the sad things sometimes when... When you realize sometimes when you miss out on something and you realize things just kept going anyway. Now, I'm not saying that, so I'm kind of afraid to tell people that sometimes. Like, well, I don't have to come to church. I don't have to do anything. It'll get done anyway. No, he actually calls us to, to react to that powerful thing that he has done in living in obedience and righteous by posturing ourselves in obedience and activity to him. It says the Lord laughs at that and holds them in derision. If you think about how, you know, when me sitting there playing with those toys and how silly that sounds, that's, that's, it, his laugh is louder than that, that we would actually try to arrange our lives, to arrange our world that would put something in the centerpiece instead of his anointed king. But it's not that funny when we go a little further in that passage and we see that he has a terrifying fury against us. And reminding us that he has set his king on Zion, his holy hill. And then he reminds us through the declaration of his word. And and don't take it lightly when he makes this declaration that he says to Jesus, you are my son. That shakes the heavens. That shakes the councils of angels. You must remember that first of all, that Jesus reigns over Satan and all angels. All angels established and all angels fallen. You must remember that the fall of Satan was because he wanted the glory. He wanted to be the centerpiece. And as long as the Lord allows him to continue to work for his purposes still, Satan is still trying to draw our attentions that he is the centerpiece. So when the Father declares very clearly and loudly that Jesus is my son, those are painful words to Satan. And that is why it is proclaimed foremost that the angels who are still in faithfulness, they cover themselves and they bow. But the Satan, the Satan and his angels, they writhe in pain. So we should proclaim it over and over again. We sang the glory pottery this morning, and I didn't realize until I read some history about it this past week that it was really meant to be a fight song. That was the tenor. You know, maybe we need to up 
some kind of tone where it's like, <laughs> because there was, there was heresy in the church at one time that wanted to diminish the glory of the sun. And so when it's highlighting the glory of the sun, those are fighting words against not just heresy that's on the earth, but fighting words against Satan. So when you are in a place that you are fighting temptation or when you are fighting doubt and despair, remind Satan that Jesus is his son and that he is reigning and that he has a great inheritance. So the focus of today's passage is clearly to to declare the supremacy of Jesus Christ over even the angels, and particularly due to his inherited position, but also his earned position as the Son of God. Something that we've become easily accustomed to hearing. Hopefully it it is in some way it's good that we've heard his name proclaimed as Son. It's showing that we are recipients of where people have had to fight for true doctrine of the word, but it is good for us to highlight it and not to take it for granted that Jesus is over the angels, but he's also over even some of the things that we might be very cozy to as evangelicals. He is over what we might encounter as maybe special or extraordinary revelations. Let me explain what that is. It's very common, I find, amongst evangelical Christians where they believe that because they, they know a little bit about the Bible and maybe they've watched some kind of television show about God, that, that they think that they have been given some kind of special revelation from God. And maybe they have, maybe in their dreams or maybe in, in some kind of sentiment of their life that God has directed them on a particular path. I'm not saying with all certainty that I would doubt that. But Jesus is supreme over that. If it is something that God is using, whether it's been your dreams or circumstances and how he's organized your life to communicate or to move you along in some kind of direction, Jesus is supreme over that. Now, I do want to make a side note that any kind of special communication like that that God may give you on a very personal level, it has no authority. (laughs) And it better be consistent with his revealed word of God. Because these proposed movings of the Holy Spirit, if it's not confirmed and consistent with the word of God, then it's not some kind of special revelation from God. So when we think about these personal life-centric interpretations through God's actions, we have to say, yes, some of those things are true and real. I'm not going to discount that. I I experienced those kind of things in my life too. I'm like, wow, you know, God organized this and he's done this. And there are certain things that go on in my life that I can see how the Lord has provided, though I could not impose those kind of things upon others because I have no authority to say, I had this dream today, you need to wash my car. (laughs) And you need to make me a pizza. (laughs) You know, if anyone tells you that kind of thing, except me, don't do it. (laughs) But we do sometimes think that way, and it becomes more of our religion instead of the very revealed revelation of who Jesus is. And so just as angels are real and they are glorious, they are still in subjection to the king. 
Sometimes it could be our cultural distinctives of living that we might think that there are certain ways that we've organized our home. And and we may have learned those particular things through the principles of his scripture, but they can become the centerpiece of our religion instead of the very person of Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished. Sometimes, not so much in, in my life, it could be how we organize our lives financially and we can be, become very principled, hard workers and, and good saviors. And when I said saviors, saving money, that is. And we can say, look what, how well I've done with this. And those are good principles. We, are to, to, we see in the scriptures plenty of places to, to be principled with how we are using the things that the Lord gives us. But it's still not the centerpiece. We can do this on a moral basis. We can say that we are, we are living a very moral life or we want to hold other people accountable to a very moral living. But again, God is, he's not that he's separate from that morality or this particular principles. Jesus is supreme over it. And if we are not focusing on that very work that he's accomplished, these other things are in subjection to Jesus Christ. Sometimes it could be our physical health. But we see that Paul says that those things do profit us a little, but it's still, it's more to be focused on Jesus. Some of us get really riled up on political and social issues, and we can fight and say, these are things that we read in the word. That is true. But Jesus is king over all politics and all principles that we could possibly adopt in our lives or want to proclaim on social media. And then there's this sentimentality of social goodness that we see in the scriptures. And that can go in all kinds of different directions. And we've seen even historically where it was once called the social gospel. I like calling it the social goodness because, you know, the gospel is about what Jesus Christ has accomplished. And so we kind of even reshape Jesus as he's some kind of social goodness savior to to make us all good people for whatever cause that we might think is good. And some of those things might be true, that those are things that Jesus teaches and principally in his word. But the fact that he reigns as king is still the most superior thing. So Jesus is superior to Satan, to all the angels established and fallen. Jesus is superior to all earthly principles and authority and should be over all of our meditations. But Jesus is ultimately superior over our sins and over death. In the verses that I read there in Hebrews today that it says, after making purification For our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He has been the son eternally by the father. But what highlights that is the fact that he is the purification of our sins. And when he accomplished that victory over our sins, he now sits and reigns at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. I know I've preached some on this passage before a little bit, but you know, if we had an angel in this room that we could see in his fullness of his glory, it would be the most glorious thing that our eyes could ever see. And Jesus surpasses that beyond what our minds could even imagine. 
because of these particular words that his father says, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. Let's just go through a little bit about what that is and what we see in the scriptures in Romans 1, uh, verses 1 through 6. It says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. It is his resurrection, his victory over death, that is the pinnacle of his sonship and his power, that he has defeated anything that could do anything bad by being that that has risen from the death. It is that victory over death that is the highlight of his power, and his sonship is glorified in it. Then further in Acts chapter 13 Verse 29, and when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a, t- in, the, in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witness to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, he has fulfilled to us, their children, By raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. It is the highlight of his sonship. When you read those words in Hebrew, in the Hebrews, and you read them in the psalm, it is the pinnacle point of that is that Jesus is raised and reigning. He is a victorious one. It is not one who has continued to be on the cross. He was taken down out off the cross and laid in the tomb. And then he raised from the dead and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is greater than the angels. He is greater than all things. And he is superior now over our sins and over our death. Praise be to God. Because apart from that centrality, We would be left without any hope of participating in that great glory that he is. And then we see quoted in the same passage in Hebrews out of 2 Samuel in verse 7. It says, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, this is speaking in general for all of us, I will discipline him with the rod of men which he took on the cross, with the stripes of the sons of men which he took on the cross. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever He's speaking through David, but it lands in the centerpiece of Jesus Christ. And it is ultimately his throne because he is the true son of God 
that we have that victory, that we get to participate in that kingdom forever. Forevermore, he is victorious over that. His sonship is what is our hope. It is because we get to participate in that inheritance, that victory over sin, our sins that he did not have. He exchanged our sins for the victory of his sonship. And that is a glorious and wonderful thing. And in closing, in Ephesians 1, chapter 1, verses 11 through 23, it's a little long passage, but I think it's a perfect closing for the understanding of what it is to focus on his sonship. Because you have to understand that if we don't focus on his sonship and how that is greater than angels, that is what our inheritance is. That is what our benefit is. We don't want to be hoping in some angelic being for our hope. We want to hope in the inheritance of the Son. Verse 11 of Ephesians 1, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in Him, and were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. That's the bad thing about a computer. I just pushed a button and it disappeared. And the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? in what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul is not short on any words there, but you have to understand that his sonship secures for us this inheritance. And that is a glorious thing. And all we are called to do is to come to him with our rags and with our filth. And we get in exchange for that a seat at his table. The men were studying 2 Samuel and we were closing. And I think one of the best images of this particular posture is Mephibosheth. That at at the very end, he comes to David the king and he's in rags. He is unclean and unkept. He has nothing. And when David says, I'm going to give you half of 
of what is, belongs to you and back to you. He's like, it doesn't matter. I am sitting at your table. I get to sit at your table. I get to be cleansed by you. You can give my servant all that I have on this earth. I get to sit at your table. All he asks is that we would bring forth our repentance, our rags before him. What a great and awesome God, the Son of God that we have. Let us pray. Our Heavenly